you're listening to Book, Line, and Sinker, a podcast from the Marble Falls Public Library. I'm Iona, your host, and today I'm interviewing Bill Gaylord, Friends of the Library President. Bill is going to tell us his story told in Ken Follett's On Wings of Eagles and how this book came to be. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for being here today. Bill, will you tell the listeners about yourself? Yes, I was uh, born and raised in uh, Washington, D.C., actually right in the center of the city. And I was raised on a steady diet of politics, the Washington Redskins football team, and the Washington Nationals baseball team. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what all my friends here in Texas say. Um, I have a wife, Emily, and three kids. Uh, Our oldest daughter, Vicki, lives in Phoenix. Our second daughter, Jackie, lives in California. And our son, Chris, lives in Colorado. Uh, we live in Texas, and you may have noticed we're all in the Southwest. Uh, that's probably a function of having lived for three years in Minnesota. Nobody wanted to live anywhere where there was a cold climate. Um, I went to uh, college at Virginia Tech, VPI, uh, which everybody knows is the A&M of the East. And after graduation, I went to work uh, in a had a career in information technology. Uh, with IBM and EDS, that was Ross Burroughs Electronic Data Systems. Um, Moved my family around quite a bit with those two companies. We lived in Washington, D.C., Dallas several times, New York City, Raleigh, North Carolina, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And then it it got better. Then we lived in London, Paris, Milan, and oh yeah, we also lived in Tehran, Iran. Besides living in those in all those different cities and states, uh, I got to travel and work all over the United States, all over Europe, the Middle East, Kuwait, uh, Iran, Egypt, and even got a uh, got to do an acquisition in Japan. So, never uh, when I grew up, I never had any idea I'd ever, you know, be outside of Washington D.C., much less uh, the United States. So my career in information technology was uh, was quite a career for me and quite a quite a trip around the world. Yeah, how did you end up in Texas? Well, um, as you may or may not know, EDS was started by Ross Perot, and it was headquartered in Dallas. So uh, in IBM, all roads led to New York. Well, in EDS, all roads led to Dallas. So eventually, after about three years, I was uh, asked, I was offered an opportunity to move to Dallas. And we bought a house and moved to Dallas. And uh, six months later, I was offered an opportunity to go to New York City. So the first time around, we didn't stay in Dallas very long. We uh, we did buy a house, but then we moved to New York City, which was uh, certainly exciting for, for us. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the library is concerned, after I finished my career with EDS, uh, we retired to uh, Horseshoe Bay. Uh, wanted some peace and quiet, wanted to be able to play golf. So um, beside playing golf every day with my friends, uh, I read a lot of books, 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 and books. And so I was kind of a frequent visitor to the uh, Marble Falls Library. And about three years ago, uh, one day I was here t- checking out some books, and Amanda Rose, the library director, uh, asked me casually, say, Bill, would you be interested in joining the Friends Board? And I said, I, I don't know, what is, what is the <laughs> Friends Board? And she told me a little bit about it, and she arranged an interview with a couple of the, uh, the president, Marty Cockerham, and 
one of the other officers in the uh, in the friends board. And during the uh, the interview, they asked me, you know, things I had done before, what other boards I'd been on, and I I told them I'd been the treasurer at the uh, Property Owners Association in Horseshoe Bay. I'd been the treasurer of the Men's Golf Association. I'd been the treasurer of the Catholic Church. I'd been the treasurer of this, the treasurer of that. <laughs> and Marty Cockerham, her eyes grew twice as big as saucers. <laughs> she exclaimed, you're in, you're in. <laughs> we need a treasurer, you're in. Whatever else you've done, you've just said the magic word. You're, you're, in, you're on the board and you're going to be our next treasurer. So I joined the board about three years ago as the treasurer. And uh, within about a year, uh, after our president uh, had to uh, retire for medical reasons, I became I was elected the president, and I'm still the president of the board of the, the Friends of the Marble Falls Library. Um, it's been an exciting three years. There've been lots of big happenings here in the library. There really has been. Yeah, along with the uh, electronic services, there's been a, a real propagation of the use of TV screens, both small ones, uh, medium size, and real big ones for uh, presentations here in the library. Uh, we've used the big screen in the uh, in the community room to first do a uh, we skyped in an author named Nicholas Obregon into the mystery book club and it was about a Japanese uh, policeman and a crime story in Japan uh, actually Nicholas was sitting in his kitchen in California in <laughs> San Francisco but he was talking to the book club sitting here in the community room just like he was in the room it was just like we could see him he could see us Fortunately, on February 21st this year, we'll have the opportunity to do that with the author Ken Follett. You kind of facilitated this Skype with Ken Follett, um, which is just, I'm so excited about. How did you meet Ken Follett? Actually, uh, this is a, a little bit of a different answer. Actually, I met Ken Follett back in 1978 mm -hmm. when I read the book Eye of the Needle. Uh, that was not his first book, but it was the first book of Ken Follett that I read. It was so exciting. It was a. It was actually a story about a German spy in England during World War II. And this, as a spy, he has captured copies of the plans of the U.S. the Normandy invasions in France in World War II, and he's desperately trying to get back to Germany <laughs> to share those plans with the Germans. And uh, so the story is about the English have figured out what he's got and who he is, and they're chasing him. He's trying to get to the coast to link up with a German submarine out in the ocean to, uh, to get back to Germany, and they're, they're chasing him down. It, so it was a very exciting book. It was a wow book. It was one of these, you, you can't wait to turn the next page, but you're scared to turn the <laughs> next page because it's, it's really so exciting. So that was my introduction to Ken Follett. I probably read a couple other of his books after that, but that was, that was my introduction to Follett. As it turns out, the next year, um, one of the unique opportunities in EDS that I've said yes to was to go to Tehran, Iran, as the uh, deputy uh, director of EDS uh, IT services in Iran. And uh, it turns out that uh, a couple of EDS executives get, a, get held hostage by the government, and uh, EDS is, uh, decides to put together a rescue team to go into Iran, it's going to be led by a fellow named Colonel Bull Simons, who's an ex-Green Beret that Ross Perot knew. So uh, as it turns out, Perot is a history buff. And after uh, pulling off the rescue, he decides this story, this is a story that's got to be told. 
So uh, he, he needs to find an author to uh, write the book and tell the story right. And the first author that he contacted was a fellow named Ben Shimmer, who had re actually written a book called The Raid. And The Raid is a story about Colonel Bull Simons back during the Vietnam War, leading a rescue operation, trying to rescue the American uh, prisoners of war in a Vietnamese uh, prison. Uh, the rescue is not successful, but but the colonel gets everybody back back alive. So, but uh, Shimmer is not a great writer. So, uh, Perot turns to a Hollywood producer director named Bill Goldman. Bill's a, a big big name in Hollywood, and uh, Ross outlines a story for Bill. And he says, you know, we got two hostages. We got fifteen or twenty uh, rescue team members. Want to tell the story? Uh, you know, everybody that's in the story. The story's got to be told about anybody and everybody who had a part. And Goldman's, a, you know, he's an old Hollywood guy. He says, Ross, he says, there are just too many characters. If if I include them all, we're going to have a book as thick as, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> that's just, that's too much. I, actually, all I need is uh, just one hostage is enough and two or three rescue team members. That'll be, that'll be plenty. And Ross said, no, 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 you don't, <laughs> you don't understand. You got to tell it about everybody. So they kind of part way. Uh, they didn't, they didn't see eye to eye. So. So Pro is back to searching for an author, and, and this is a little bit of pillow talk story. Uh, one night he's sitting in bed uh, reading a book, and his wife Margo's sitting next to him. She's just finishing a book, and believe it or not, the book she's just finished was Eye of the Needle by Ken Follett. <laughs> and so she says, Ross, I know you're looking for an author. This guy Follett is really good. This book was fantastic. Why don't you contact him and, and see if he'll write the story? I think he's a great writer, great author. So um, Perot contacts Follett and invites him, this is probably 1981 or 82, two or three years after the rescue, uh, invites him to come to Dallas and uh, meet the rescue team, find out the story, and, and perhaps write the book. Well, they wine and dine Follett after he gets to Dallas. Uh, he meets the rescue team members. Uh, he meets the two hostages. They show him all the newspaper clippings that had been written in the newspapers at the time. And uh, Follett's first thought is, boy, this is just a big publicity stunt. This guy Perot is, you know, he's like all Texans. <laughs> you know, he doesn't know the truth when he saw it. He just wants me to write a book in, uh, you know, in praise of Perot and EDS. But after he interviews all the, uh, all the people, begins to interview the people, he realizes, oh my gosh, the story is real. So uh, he consents to write the book. And uh, he and I got to be good friends because uh, he interviewed almost everybody involved. But the interview with the two hostages uh, obviously took a little bit longer than some of the rescue team members. And uh, believe it or not, I'd, while we were in prison for 44 days, I had a, a daily diary. Every day I'd uh, step off the dimensions of the cell or I'd uh, walk the hallways to see how long it was. I'd draw a drawing of the prison, the little library the, where we ate. Uh, the, the prison cell rooms, things like that, and kept some daily uh, notes of what was going on as far as the embassy visiting us or EDS trying to, to get us released. So I, so I had written this uh, diary, left it behind when we escaped the prison, but, I, but I'd written this diary, which meant a lot of the uh, details were still fresh in my mind. Plus, immediately after we were rescued and came back to Dallas, Ross asked everybody to sit down with a tape recorder and just dump core. Uh, record everything you can remember about what happened. Don't worry about format. Don't worry about sequence. Don't worry about how neat it is, punctuation. Just talk. 
talk everything you can remember, get it down on tape. The secretaries will type it up and we'll have it one day when we, if and when we ever write a book. Yeah. So Follett's got, uh, he's got all these tape recordings from the rescue team members and the hostages. He's got my recollection of what I'd written in the diary. So he basically says, this is the first time I've ever written a book, but I've already got a script when I begin. Well, it was, it was just that. It was notes and thoughts, but it had to be put together properly as, as a book. He uh, interviewed family members. He wanted to know what my wife and kids, what life was like in Iran when we were living there. I uh, wanted to know what, what in the world were they doing when we were in prison and they were, you know, were they being kept up to date on how, how dangerous it was and how bad it was? And my wife said, yes, yes, she was. She was uh, talking to Pro Daily, asking him, what are you doing about it? <laughs> So, uh, so that was that was the beginning of Follett writing the book on Wings of Eagles. Later in 1984, a couple of years later, I had another unique opportunity to move to uh, London, England, with my family, and that's where Follett lived. And unfortunately, some of the rescue team members were already working there, and so they they knew Follett, and we got to be good personal friends, uh, even to the extent where I was invited. My wife and I were invited to uh, his wedding to his current wife, Barbara. Mm -hmm. So, and we've stayed in touch ever since. The last meeting, though, in person with Follett was uh, last April, last August. Uh, Ross Perot died, and both uh, Follett and, and I uh, attended his funeral in Dallas. His wife, Barbara, was with him. Uh, Jay Coburn, one of the rescue team members, uh, Paul Chaperone, my co hostage, uh, my family, and uh, some of the other rescue team members were there. So we had kind of a, a reunion of sorts of the Iran, of the Iran rescue. And he told us he was, uh, he was hard at it writing his next new book, which was The Evening and the Morning. Ooh, I'm excited for that. So I'm just going to backtrack um, to On Wings of Eagles for a bit. We kind of know a bit of your story, but I just want to, what's, um, what is it about? The, I guess the Wikipedia summary of On Wings of Eagles. Uh, well, it's uh, first of all, it's unusual for Follett in that it's nonfiction. All the only other nonfiction book he's written is the most recent one, Notre Dame, which is about the fire in the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, which is uh, factual, not fiction. Uh, so On Wings of Eagles is also a fact, not fiction. And uh, what it's all about is back in uh, 1978, uh, EDS, is, which is an American information technology company, uh, we have a major contract with the Iranian government to basically do all of their data processing for the next four years. Uh, and that includes uh, doing their national health insurance processing of claims and health records. Um, doing their social security program, actually issuing uh, the first social security cards that they've, they've ever had. I've actually got my social security card. I've got some benefits in Iran if I ever chose to go back. <laughs> um, uh, banking. I, at that point in time in Iran, most banking was done in uh, big manual ledger books in the banks. You'd go in and they'd by hand enter your deposit or enter your withdrawal <laughs> in the book. Uh, after you'd proven who you were <laughs> and after somebody else had witnessed the entry being made because they didn't trust anybody they didn't even trust each other but so banking was was done by hand in books and we were automating banking in Iran 
And then they had the kind of the entire administration of the various ministries, uh, accounting and so forth that, that had to be done. So we're, we're well into way we've, we've uh, for the Iranian government, we've built uh, a new brand new data center that at that time was probably the biggest and the most modern data center in the Middle East. Um, so we got this major, major contract underway and uh, all is well for about the first two years of the contract. And then uh, somewhere in the middle of 1978, the revolution, a revolution begins to brew in Iran. These are mostly uh, various factions that are anti-Shah. The religious leaders were anti-Shah, the communists were anti-Shah, the Bazaris were anti-Shah. So there are various factions in the country and they all thought that if they banded together, maybe they could overthrow the Shah. And they all thought, well, they'd wind up in power uh, after the Shah was only overthrown. Only the religious leaders were the only ones who were right. <laughs> they wound up in power. So the revolution begins to, to heat up to overthrow the Shah. Uh, there are a lot of strikes in the country. Uh, there are a lot of demonstrations in the streets or curfews at night. Uh, we could hear we could hear the demonstrators uh, marching after night at nighttime. Uh, they've dressed up in white. They're ready to go meet uh, their maker, Allah, if, uh, if they're killed demonstrating. And actually, we can hear, uh, sitting on the roof of our villa, we can hear the machine guns going dot, 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 as the, as the army uh, fires into the crowds at night. Uh, so we've never uh, been in a country with a revolution going on, but there was the whole country was in revolution. Well, EDS, uh, we continued working. We continued turning the computer cycles every day. We, we kept doing the data entry functions. We kept delivering the reports. All of our people, we've got about 100 uh, Americans and, and Brits and about 200 Iranian employees that are all, we're continuing to work. Uh, the only problem is the government has stopped paying. They're not paying EDS, they're not paying any contractors. They're, they're, they're on strike too. So, uh, but like when you have a contract, if you don't get paid, eventually you what you do is you file suit for payment. And so we notified the Iranian government that uh, we intended to file suit if we didn't get, uh, if they didn't make up their back payments. And they owed us probably about $12 million in American money at that, at that time. Well, their response was, was unfortunately, it wasn't payment. Uh, the justice official, this Justice Dadgar, who was like a judge, uh, his, his response was to arrest the top two EDS officials in country and that was Paul Chaperone and myself. And uh, he decided that uh, what he would do, since he was so benevolent, is he would set our bail at only $12.75 million, which was, according to our Iranian lawyer, uh, a record at the time of bail being asked in Iran. He's, he told us that just the year before a murder, the bail had only been set at a million dollars. So, so as it turns out, he explained to us, what you are is you're really economic hostages. The uh, justice is simply offsetting what they owe you with what they're saying you owe them. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully this can all be worked out. Well, uh, Ross, of course, was informed that we'd been arrested. So he uh, he fires up the lawyers. He fires up the, uh, the EDS executives. They come uh, to Iran. And uh, their first thought is, well, let's pay the bail and get them out of jail and get them out of the country and then settle this in the courts. But all the because of the revolution, all the Iranian banks are closed. None of them are operating, so there's really no way to uh, 
to pay the 12.7 million through Iranian banks. Uh, they've somehow they convinced the State Department to uh, pledge the U.S. Embassy there in Tehran as collateral for the money. But Justice Yadgar says uh, he refused that. He said, "What do I need with a with an embassy? Uh, I have no use for the embassy, so I, I won't accept your collateral." Um, they actually tried to get a bank guarantee out of a bank in Fort Worth, but the banker was too clever. He said, uh, I'm not going to give you a $12 million bank guarantee because I know you're going to default on it, <laughs> on it, and so I'll wind up owing the, the Iranian government $12 million bucks, so no deal. So, uh, so paying the bail didn't work. There was always the option of paying the bail in cash, but Ross was wise enough to know that if he put $12 million in cash on the desk of Justice Dadgar, one day that the next day there'd be a different justice there saying, where's the money? And Justice Dadgar would be in Switzerland with $12 million. Yeah. <laughs> so, so paying in cash wouldn't work either. Um, but Ross, uh, not to be, uh, didn't give up easily. He had a lot of efforts going on beside Iran, going on in Washington, D.C. We had uh, various people contacting the White House trying to convince Char uh, Carter, President Carter, to uh, work through the State Department to get us or through the military to get us released. Um, we had uh, friends and relatives who were actually uh, dealing with Senator Kennedy and Senator Mathias from Maryland uh, who were introducing uh, resolutions trying to get Carter to, uh, to do something to get us released. And uh, last but not least, they had uh, they worked up a scheme where my wife Emily actually went down to the White House and delivered a note to Rosalind Carter explaining the situation. and asking her to try to intervene with her husband, Jimmy, one night uh, when they were lying in bed together. To, Jimmy, we got two Americans over there in Iran. You need to do what you can to get them, to get them released. Well, Rosalind did get the message. We don't know what she did with it, but uh, Emily got a very nice note after we were safely returned to the United States uh, saying that Rosalind was happy to read in the paper that we had been rescued and returned to the United States. So, uh, but... Uh, None of those efforts really worked. So Perot's last effort was to form a, a rescue team, and he contacted his uh, his old friend, Colonel Bull Simons. And uh, Bull came to Dallas. Uh, fortunately, EDS was made up of a lot of ex-Green Beret and military uh, people, who, many of whom had worked in and lived in Iran. So they knew the city, they knew the country, and they were already combat trained. So uh, the colonel interviewed dozens and dozens of people that were qualified and selected, probably about 12 to 15 of them and formed a rescue team. They trained at Ross's place on the lake. And then they started uh, coming in into Tehran at first to try to rescue us from a small Ministry of Justice jail. But unfortunately, before they could uh, execute that, that uh, rescue, because of the revolution going on, a general, an Iranian general decided to move all the prison, all the foreign prisoners from all the jails in Iran, to this giant prison complex at uh, a prison called Gazra. It was huge. It was like six blocks across and about twelve blocks deep, and dozens of buildings and uh, bakeries and cell, a lot of cells, um, guards up in uh, towers with uh, rifles and machine guns, and the walls were probably 30, 40 feet high. So this was a giant prison complex. And the colonel was bright enough to know that it's too big, my little 12-man team, no way we can get them out of that. Uh, Perel wasn't one to give up easily, so he came into the country to visit us. 
And he would have made, uh, if we were worth $12 million, he probably would have been worth all the gold in uh, Fort Knox if they'd known who he was. Uh, they could have held him for ransom and gotten a lot of money. <clears throat> but they didn't realize who he was. So he came over for a morale visit for us and to tell us uh, to be alert, something was up. Uh, watch out for an old man. If an old man told us to follow me, pay attention and follow him, whoever whoever it was. We didn't know what was really going on, whether helicopter was going to come over the, the courtyard of where we were being held or a rope was going to be thrown over the wall or just what was going to happen. But what actually happened is the revolution itself attacked the prison where we were staying. Our, our rescue team, uh, what the colonel and a couple of the Iranians did was incite the rioters to attack the prison to free the Shah's prisoners, including the Americans. <laughs> <laughs> the Americans. They didn't say yeah. that, but they said, let's attack the prison and, and uh, free all the Shah's prisoners. So the revolutionaries actually attacked the prison and in the chaos of the prison being um, attacked, Paul and I actually made it out over the wall through a construction site on uh, one of the walls, uh, made our way through the streets of Tehran with a revolution going on all around us, uh, hitchhiked rides with a couple, with an Iranian couple. Uh, they took us back to the hotel where some of the rescue team members had been staying. And lo and behold, we linked up with the rescue team. And uh, I'll leave the rest of the story to mm -hmm. those who want to read the book. But the, the rest of the book is about Paul and Bill have uh, gotten back to the hotel. They've linked up with the colonel and parts of the rescue team. So how did they get them out? <laughs> how, did they, how did they get them out of Iran back to Dallas? Yeah, that uh, it's such an interesting book. What I love about it is Follett writes it like a fiction book, kind of. Like, it's nonfiction, um, but it he writes it like a novel, and it makes it a really great read. Um, do you think that he told the story... Uh, accurately did was he the best person to tell what happened in your opinion well I think it as it turns out I think he was an excellent uh, choice since um, since I know his background and he's told me how he how he became an author uh, actually he was a newspaper journalist and uh, newspaper journalists don't make a lot of money his car had been banged up it was in the in the shop needing repair and he needed 250 pounds, which he didn't have to get his car out of the repair shop. And one of his uh, cohorts there at the newspaper got a check one day for just happened to be 250 pounds. And Ken asked him, you know, where'd you get that? He said, well, I go home at night. I sit in the kitchen. I, I write uh, mystery stories. I send them off to publishers. And every now and then one sells. And this is a royalty check from one of my stories. So that night, Ken gets the bright idea. Well, I can do that, too. He goes home and uh, starts writing mystery stories uh, so he can get his car out of the shop. Uh, his, his first couple novels, uh, according to Ken anyway, were, were not all that good. It didn't, didn't sell that way, so he didn't make much money. But his publisher at the time told him, Ken, what you're lacking is you just don't do enough research. The stories are too thin on facts, and they just they don't have a, a true ring to them. So they're not, they're not that exciting. They're not that realistic. They're just not selling. Word of mouth is not helping sell your books. So so Ken decides, okay, so I need to do more research uh, to make my books more factual. So uh, the book that, for instance, the book he's working on now, The Evening and the Morning, he's been working on for three years. It'll, it'll come out this September, but it's, 
It's a book that's been underway for three years and is probably his previous three books all took two or three years each to be researched, written, rewritten, edited, and written. So, yeah, research is the name of the game for him. And even on Wings of Eagles, uh, he did a lot of research, and he certainly didn't believe the story that Perot first told him uh, until he did a lot of research with the, uh, the rescue team and whatnot. Yeah, but he didn't take our word for it. He did decide to do his own fact check. He, uh, he talked with uh, met with lawyers both in D.C. and New York to find out really what were about the extradition treaties between Iran and the United States and Germany and what were the legal issues with uh, escaped hostages from a revolution mm -hmm. that had come back to the United States. Was it possible the U.S. government could send us back to Iran? Uh, you know, those kind of issues. Uh, he also made a visit to Washington, D.C. to the State Department, and he uh, talked to a gentleman named Lou Geltz at the State Department, who happened to have been the Consul General for the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, somebody we did business with really on a daily basis. And uh, I guess Ken had told Lou uh, what our version of the story was. And Lou said, well, he thought his memory was a little bit different on some of the facts that uh, maybe things had happened in a different way. So. Follett calls me one day and he says, I'm here with Lou Geltz and Lou thinks his version of the story is a little bit different than yours. What do you have to say about that, Bill? I said, well, well, Ken, you remember some of the documents we showed you were the uh, logbooks that we had in Tehran from the office. Every time we called the embassy, we entered in the logbook who we called, what we called about, who we talked to, what we said, what they said. And so we, we have a record of every call that was made to Lou Geltz and the other embassy officials during the time before, during, and after we were arrested. So, so Ken kind of disappears for a few minutes. He comes back. He says, I told all that to Lou. And Lou says, well, maybe your memory is a little bit better than, <laughs> than, than his. So he'll accept our, our vision. So Falad also interviewed some various Iranian officials. I'm not, I'm not sure who all he talked to that were Iranian officials, but... I know he researched On Wings of Eagles about as thoroughly as any author has ever researched a, a book before he's written it. That's great. Uh, one of my favorite things that I, when I was researching uh, Ken in this book, uh, was that him and Ross Pro, while they were really great friends, they kind of butted heads, especially while he was writing this book, and that uh, they just had kind of a difference of opinion <laughs> on what happened. Did you kind of, were you in the middle of that at all or get to experience some of that? Yeah, I was. There, there was uh, Follett's version of, of the story, which was on Wings of Eagles. There was the version that uh, Paul and I told of, and the rescue team told of on Wings, you know, of the rescue story. And then there was Ross's version of, uh, of the story. And Ross's version began when we're on the plane, we're, we're, we're across, we're out of Iran. We're into Turkey, we're over to Germany, and from Germany we're flying, we're, we're going to fly back to the United States. And as soon as that plane is up in the air, Ross calls Paul and I back in the back of the plane where he is and asks us to start telling him everything we can remember of what happened while we were in Iran and while we were prisoners. So he's already thinking of history in, in a book. So he sits and listens to our version of the events. Eventually, we get, we get back to Dallas uh, a couple days later, and uh, 
Well, first of all, we're met by at the airport by a spontaneous outpouring of about 300 EDSers who somehow have, <laughs> have heard that the plane is coming in with pro and hostages and something has happened in Iran and the story will be told at the airport. Just go to the airport and we're going to have a big reception and Ross will tell you all about it. So I got to hear Ross's version, his version of the story at the uh, big reception at the airport. And then the next day, the only clothes I've got to my name are what I have on. And I really don't smell all that good. So I'm at a department store in Dallas buying some, some new clothes and some new underwear and everything. And uh, I get tapped on the shoulder and I'm told by one of the ESers, Ross wants to see you in his office right now. So I said, well, okay, as soon as I get my clothes, they said, no, he wants to see you right now. So I go back to uh, Perot's office and Chaperone's there. And Ross tells us, he said, uh, boys, we're going to have a press conference this afternoon. Actually, the, the story of the escape had leaked out to the press. And I convinced them to hold the story. Don't publish it while we're trying to escape, get you out. Uh, but as soon as you get back, we'll have a press conference the next day and we'll tell them the whole story. We'll give them an exclusive on the whole story. So we're going to have a press conference this afternoon. You and Paul don't need to do anything. The colonel and I will be there and uh, I'll tell them what happened. And so at the press conference, Ross told them his version of what <laughs> happened. And that's, that was what was published in the papers. And it was it was a pretty good story. Now, there is there is one other version of the story I should tell you about, and that's the ABC version of the story. A couple of years later, ABC TV decided they'd do the movie on, on Wings of Eagles, uh, starring Burt Lancaster as the Colonel and Richard Crenna as Ross Perot. Um, they tried to get Frank Sinatra to do Ross Perot, but uh, Ross rejected Frank Sinatra for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> but he thought okay. Richard, Richard Crenna was, was okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember the name of the guy that played my part. Um, I'm five foot ten, about 170 pounds. The uh, gentleman that played my part is about six foot four. He's got a giant head of hair, real young, good-looking guy. And the colonel told me not to worry that if if the uh, if the Iranians were ever looking for revenge, they're looking for a tall guy with a big head of hair. <laughs> and so they they would never find me. Uh, but anyway, ABC made this movie. Uh, it was a two-night TV movie. They spent uh, $10 million to make the TV movie, and I guess the story wasn't exciting enough for them, so they've got Paul and I throwing hand grenades into the crowd and machine gunning the enemy <laughs> soldiers during our escape and jazzed up the story a little bit. But the colonel explained to us, hey, when you spend $10 million, you get to, you get to add a little bit more to the movie <laughs> to make it more exciting. So yeah. there's also that version of the story. <laughs> so if you want the more accurate version, read the book. If you want the exciting <laughs> dramatized version watch the movie uh, i want to move on um, and talk a little bit about ken follett's other uh, novels which are mostly fiction uh, especially since we're about to have him at kind of have him at the library have him virtually at the library um one of my favorite uh, books is actually his uh, century i think that's what it's called century trilogy and that's a Fall of Giants is the first one. And it's one of my favorite books of all time. It starts in World War One. It uh, covers the Russian Revolution. It covers kind of the U.S. and Europe and Russia um, all at the same time during that period. And uh, these five families are kind of connected loosely. And it's just so interesting. Uh, what 
You discussed Eye of the Needle um, just being, that was kind of like a spy thriller. Do you have any other favorite novels of his? I, I do, but first of all, uh, on the one that you mentioned, the World War One story, mm-hmm. um, that was very well told, and, and part of the story of that is is the is the uh, Russian Revolution that's going on in the background of World War One? Uh, well, I wasn't born during World War One, so there's a lot of facts about World War One I, I didn't know. But I never really realized that the Russian Revolution was going on in the background of World War One. Russia had been involved in World War One, and then basically exited World War One for several years to have their revolution. Yeah. Uh, and I never realized that. And so this book goes into a lot of detail of what the Russian Revolution was all about in relation to World War One. It is so interesting. And I think what, what I love about that trilogy is it has something for everyone. Um, it's historical fiction. There's romance. There's The research on it is just impeccable. But uh, you really get, there's just like, you get a sense of like the family life and not just the facts of what's happening during, during World War One, And he really, I think, has a sense of these characters um, that he writes. And you just kind of, you feel their emotions going through uh, the war, going through the revolution. And I, it just, it, it appeals to a, a lot of different readers. Well, my favorites are a little bit different. Um, I mentioned Eye of the Needle, since that was the first book I read. And it was so exciting, and the movie was even more exciting. That was one that Donald Sutherland was in. Uh, he was also in my, my next favorite, which is Pillars of the Earth. That was Follett's first book where he um, talks about the building of cathedrals. Uh, interestingly enough, having, having written the book Pillars of the Earth, which is about the construction of uh, cathedrals, one of, them, one of the cathedrals that's built is in Knightsbridge, and curiously enough, the reason it's being built is because the one that was there before burns and falls to the ground. So Follett has, has already written a book about a cathedral catching fire and burning and the cathedral crashing to the ground. So not only is the story exciting, it sets the stage for his latest book, which is Notre Dame. And back last April 15th, as, as many of you, I think the world knows, the cathedral in Paris, Notre Dame, catches on fire, and the world is watching on TV. We're watching from Horseshoe Bay, Follett's watching from London, and I imagine a good part of the world that had TV coverage is watching it on BBC or some channel. I mean, it was on every channel when it was happening. Is watching this, and and the announcers have no idea. They're saying, how can a stone cathedral burn? What's burning? And one of them has a bright idea. He said, well, let's call Ken Follett. He wrote this book. Pillars of the Earth. I think one of the cathedrals caught on fire. He knows all about cathedrals. Let's see what he has to say. So they get him on the air during the coverage, and he says, "Yes, I know. I know what is burning up there in the attic. They got birds' nests. They got trash. They got they got uh, wood. They got big wood beams. They got a lot of combustible materials. Somebody has either dropped a cigarette, or there's been an electrical spark, or something has caught all that detritus." on fire and once it got to the wooden beams then it's going to be Katie bar the door he even he even half predicted that that uh, once the roof goes with all the wooden beams if the towers go if the two towers go the whole the whole cathedral will come down fortunately 
he went to sleep that night thinking when he woke up in the morning it'd all be gone. But when he got up in the morning at four to do a TV interview, the two towers were still standing. It, it had been built well enough that the cathedral did not come crashing to the ground, even though a large part of the, all the roof and everything had burned off. So Follett's uh, book, uh, Pillars of the Earth, turned out to be kind of a predictor of a fire that actually hit the cathedral in Notre Dame in, in Paris. And Follett was kind of the world's expert on how the fires start in cathedrals and, and what happens. But that was a very exciting book. And it's the book he's writing now in the evening and the morning is the prequel to Pillars of the Earth. And Ken has written a sequel to Pillars of the Earth. So there's a, there's a whole series of, of books that are about 200 years apart um, in happening. And I would recommend uh, Pillars of the Earth to anybody who's interested in his, uh, his writing. Uh, my third favorite, this is going to come as a surprise to many of you, it's On Wings of Eagles. <laughs> and the reason I like that is it has a really good ending. <laughs> we, we escape and come back to Dallas and live happily ever after. Yes, that's, a, that's the best ending you can hope for <laughs> in that situation. Well, I'm really excited to have Ken Follett here, and I hope our uh, patrons are as well. Um, unfortunately, the event has sold out <laughs> completely. The wait list is full, um, but we encourage uh, our patrons that have do not get to attend the event to check out his books and sign up for our newsletter, and you'll kind of get in the loop if we ever have Follett back again or if we have other authors that we bring in or Skype in. Speaking of other authors, there, there are a couple other what I'll call historical authors that, that I've read or uh, read that are fiction writers um, that I think are pretty good. One of them is a fellow named Michener. I, th I think most of you have read some of Michener's. I actually read one of his books in prison. The prison actually had a, an English language library, a small library that previous prisoners had, had left behind for uh, future prisoners. And so one of the books I read was Tales of the South Pacific by Michener, which was a bunch of little short stories about uh, World War II in the South Pacific. Um, another good favorite of mine is this fellow named Hemingway. Uh, maybe some of you have heard of Hemingway. Uh, one of the ones I liked the most was The Sun Also Rises. Uh, having spent a lot of time in Spain, uh, this is a story about the bulls running in Pamplona, a famous uh, annual event where all the idiots uh, dress up and run in front of the bulls. <laughs> and Some of them get killed and gored, but it's uh, evidently a challenge of manhood to run in front of the bulls, and it's also a story of bullfights in Spain. And the only bullfight I've ever seen happened to be in Barcelona. I was there for a, a wedding of our uh, chairman of our Spanish company, and in the afternoon on Sunday, the day after the wedding, the uh, maitre d' at the hotel suggested, I, why, don't, why don't you go to a bullfight if you've never seen one? And I did, and I can only tell you that it was the most ex one of the most exciting outdoor events I've ever seen in my life. If you watch the bullfights on TV, they don't show them anymore, but back when they used to, all you really got to see was the bullfighting. You, you didn't get to see the band and the Toreadors coming in in, in advance of the, all the pomp and ceremony and the bulls coming out and dancing around the ring. And they're so magnificent before they're, before they're hurt. You can't imagine how any, uh, how any Toreador could possibly ever beat the bull. I mean, the bull's <laughs> got to win, but finally after they've cut the neck muscles and everything, the, the, uh, 
they have they have a chance. The Toreador has a chance to uh, to win. But it was probably the most one of the most exciting outdoor events, far better than a football game or a baseball game, because there was constant action. There was there were no advertisements, no commercials. But okay. this this guy Hemingway does write a pretty good book. I said, there's some really great classic historical fiction out there. Uh, a book that I've read recently that's kind of new. It was written in 2018. Um, it was Becoming Mrs. Lewis, and it's it, it's historical fiction based on. C.S. Lewis and his wife and if you like C.S. Lewis um, this just kind of gives the other side it talks about his wife um, and how they got together which is just a really interesting story but it's just well researched it's probably my I've recommended it to a lot of patrons (laughs) well I think that's kind of Follett's uh, style he takes it's called fiction but he takes a lot of history that he's researched that's fact and he mixes in some new characters and some some new events that take place, but it's really usually tied to what actually happened during a period of time. So it's it's not all made up. It's a little bit of fiction mixed in with a lot of fact to make a really interesting story. Um, his next book, uh, Evening in the Morning, is probably uh, sometime around the 10th century, as I recall. And it's, uh, it's during the Dark Ages in Europe. And uh, the Anglo-Saxons have, are in the midst of conquering England, raising havoc. And uh, so Follett's written, written about that. I won't tell you anymore because I don't want to give away the story. But uh, I think you'll find it as exciting as all the other books that he's written. I'm excited to read it because I'm just, I don't really want to research that period, but I'll learn about it through fiction. So, well, that's exciting. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and telling us your story. I think a lot of patrons are going to be um, just surprised. Um, they're like, I've known this, <laughs> this guy, <laughs> not known all of this about him and We're excited to have Follett here. Um, I'm going to give one little plug at the end. Um, If you want to be a part of what's happening in the library, you really should join the Friends, um, potentially the Friends board. Uh, It's just an exciting time to be a part of the Marble Falls Library. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me.